do you like a good fight? No, Julie says no. Uh, you know, I, I, I really think that that's what's the secret behind some of these uh, quote, end quote, reality shows, you know. Um, you're just waiting to see somebody fight. And uh, for some reason, it's, it's, it, it intrigues us. But let me ask a more serious question. You ever been to a church fight? Huh? You know, I, I promise you, when I lived in Appalachia, there were some of those that, that, you know, people would get dressed up for, and I swear I could have put it on pay-per-view and sold tickets for it. Um, you know, there was some issue coming to the floor, and you knew they were, everybody was kind of stacking the pew on the annual business meeting. Mary, it sounds like you've been there. Uh, it's just interesting how people like to fight in church. I, I don't really get that. I actually refereed a fight uh, at a church um, where uh, we were doing a baby dedication that particular day, and the, the in-laws were not getting along, and literally I got called to the parking lot um, because there were fisticuffs taking place. Guys, that was here. In this building, okay? We got the baby dedicated. Who knows what happened after that, but okay. Uh, I was preaching that day, and uh, anyway, uh, so. Uh, interesting, uh, you know. It, and yet, what we've been dealing with here in First and Second Corinthians, certainly in Second Corinthians, is this issue of Paul having to kind of referee a fight in church. He's kind of, he's kind of dealing with some of that here, and we're, we're going to see some of it. Uh, again today in chapter six. Now next week, if you'll, if you'll, uh, it'll be a little more pleasant next week. And actually, it's going to be pleasant this week because we're going to talk about reconciliation, which is a, a wonderful subject for us to talk about. But next week we'll be in chapter eight and nine, um, and we'll talk about uh, generosity next week as we close out this study. Paul faced all kinds of opposition from one or more factions, warring, fighting factions from within this church, uh, this Corinthian church. We can kind of sketch some of their characteristics by reading uh, kind of between the lines or kind of piecing together passages from uh, his writing uh, to, the, to that church in First and Second Corinthians. His opponents first claimed uh, superior spiritual status and knowledge over him. Some taught, secondly, that um, immoral behavior was of no consequence. It didn't really matter. He had to deal with that. Third, uh, some denied or questioned the idea that God would raise people from the dead or that, that the resurrection was a reality. Fourth, uh, some opponents minimized or uh, denied Paul's authority as of an apostle. They kind of took that on and, and uh, kind of challenged him as an apostle or having that kind of authority. Fifth, uh, they characterized him, interestingly, as powerful in his writing, in his letters, but uh, kind of unimpressive in person. Can you imagine having to feel that kind of thing? And then last, um, uh, some just claimed he was downright crazy. Now, go to, if you will, go to um, um, 5.13. We're going to be at 6 today, so just look across the page at 5.13. If you don't think I'm telling the truth, here we go. For if we are beside ourselves, 
Okay, so you can put the word crazy in there. If, if, if we are crazy, he says, and we as a corporate I is what he's dealing with there. So he, he's going to say, if I am crazy, it is for God. If I'm of sound mind, it is for you. So he's, he's obviously kind of dealing somewhat with people even claiming that he's just nuts. And um, so, I, you know, I can't imagine having gone through anything quite that severe, even through, you know, 37 years of, of some kind of pastoral ministry and dealing with all kinds of things in church. So we want to get into this passage where we can let Paul deal with here. He's going to start closing out his thoughts to them, and he's thinking better of them, and he's admonishing them and commending them to one another to reconcile. Now, what you might want to do as we begin to read this is think of some situation that's been difficult in your life, maybe currently, to reconcile. There's somebody, there's, there's a, a nagging issue over here somewhere that's just been hard for you to reconcile with that person. Maybe this is something in the past and you wonder, I wonder if I dealt with that correctly and, and I wonder if I've moved beyond that appropriately, okay? So let's read there. Bob, if you don't mind to start us, read the first couple of verses of 2 Corinthians 6. Okay, now, we're going to deal with here, uh, he's going to start talking about receiving God's grace and not doing so in vain. Uh, this is going to follow a long segment, chapter 5, almost that whole chapter uh, is dealing with this issue of reconciliation. You might want to take some time later on and read uh, chapter 5, verse 11, down through verse 21, right kind of in the crux part of that section on reconciliation is where Paul shares one of my favorite verses for baptism or whatever, uh, 5.17, 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's right in the middle of this chapter on reconciliation. So he's been dealing with this for a while. And he, he says something similar to what Jesus says. Um, would somebody go to Matthew 6, 12 and read what Jesus says about reconciliation and forgiveness? Matthew 6, 12. Somebody got it? So even in Jesus' model prayer to us, he's saying we're to forgive as we've been forgiven. Okay? Um, uh, so the idea here is, in, in Paul's thought, is that God's forgiveness compels us to offer forgiveness to other people. It, the gospel couldn't be more simple than that. And this issue of, of warring factions within the body of Christ is really, really simple when you, when you uh, distill it down to this one characteristic, and we'll keep bumping our heads up against it all day today, the, uh, all through this hour today, is the idea that God's forgiveness in Christ compels me to forgive you. Okay? And I've got to think about that, and that, that concept has got to layer over everything else that I do. Then, in verse 2, he quotes, quotes a passage from... Uh, 
Isaiah 49, verse 8. And this is a really, really important truth that he's conveying here because he's dealing with, Isaiah brings about this idea of a coming day in Isaiah's mind, in Isaiah's prediction, his prophecy, a coming day, a, a day yet in the future that he is going to call the day of salvation. Isaiah uses that, 700 B.C. The day of salvation is coming. Now, look again at verse 2 and tell me what you think is the most important verse in verse 2. I'm sorry, most important word in verse 2. Well, salvation certainly, it's the subject here. Now, it's in there twice. It's in there twice. So Paul is going to say, yes, Isaiah saw a day of salvation coming. Paul's going to say, that day is now. Now is the day of salvation. He says it kind of two different ways so that we can certainly catch it. Today is the day. Now is the time. That day of salvation long promised, promised long ago, is now here. It's, not a, it's now a present reality. Okay. So he's going to kind of center all this conversation about um, dealing with your conflict around the idea that the day of salvation is here. You don't have to look forward to it. You don't have to wait for anything else. Ruana, maybe that'll help us thinking about uh, your work in Thessalonians. You and I were talking earlier about one of the, things, one of the only things we need to know is the Lord is returning. All the rest of that stuff is a little bit fluff by comparison. The idea here is that, that the crucial point is I don't need to wait for some future date for salvation to come. I don't need to wait for God to do anything else. He accomplished all that in the cross and the empty tomb. Now is the day of salvation. Is that a comfort to you? It ought to be. It ought to be. It ought to be when you're thinking about maybe a member of your family or a close friend who has been far from, the, far from the gospel, far from the Lord all their lives. It's an, it's an encouragement to you to think about. But today is the day of salvation. And frankly, and I've seen it happen dozens of times over my years, when we think a person is least savable, I hate to use that word, but you know kind of what I'm talking about. Farthest from God is about the time, interestingly, that often God shows up in some marvelous way or some even some tragic way. And that person ends up responding to God and to the gospel by faith. And their life is turned around. How many times have I seen that happen in the context of the loss of a job or um, the loss of a loved one or some illness or whatever. I'll never forget, I was in eastern Kentucky and um, I was uh, uh, doing hospital work, among other things that I did at the church where I was working. And uh, I was asked by a lady who was 100 years old to go visit her son-in-law, who was far from God, and uh, he was really sick. 
So I went to the hospital, as the case is when you do this kind of work, you end up meeting people in the hospital. And I, he was there by himself. Uh, when I walked into his room, he was turned away from me and away from the door, kind of staring out the window. Tough guy. I'd uh, been a successful businessman. And I introduced myself to him, and he had a lump in his throat five minutes before he'd been told he was dying with cancer. Now, so I shared the good news with him. But it wasn't me. I just planted seed. You know who harvested that seed? It was a little lady named Georgia Barker who was a... Uh, who wore one of these pink smock things. She was a volunteer at the hospital, and she loved Jesus like crazy. And she also knew this family, and sometime after when I was there, she came in, and she had a pen in her hand. The only thing she had in her hand, an ink pen, and she handed it to Ed, and she said, Ed, all you've got to do to receive this message is to just accept it like I'm offering you my pen. That man was saved. He's in heaven today. He only lived probably another six or nine months. But his life was different. And his mother-in-law thought he was unreachable. Today. Now. Now's time. I don't need to wait for some better message to come along. I don't need to wait for some other magnanimous act to take place in history. The greatest thing that's ever happened to you has already taken place. That's what Jesus did for you on the cross. You don't know how close your loved ones are. And neither do I. So we just keep sowing the seed. We just keep loving on them. And as a, a book that we used here for small group curriculum years ago, uh, the title kind of implied, I need to just love them till they ask me why. <laughs> and then share Jesus with them. Okay. Let's go on to talk about this issue as we go on verse 3. Would somebody read 3? Steve, would you mind to read 3 down to 10? Paul is talking here about, and I want you to be kind of dial in with me here for a minute. We all, we all know that we can use this. He's talking about hindrances to the gospel. But in this case, he's more specifically talking about hindrances to reconciliation. So that, that word hindrance or hindrances goes in there. He, he strives in his life to avoid hindrances to the gospel. And in particularly in this chapter, he's talking about, I don't want to live in such a way that I will hinder your reconciliation. Okay, now, um, I want you to go with me back 
just a few pages to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 7. Here's one of those hindrances he's going to talk about. Okay? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't use the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and doesn't use the milk or of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. What's he talking about here? Talking about payment for his work as a minister. Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in the hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And by the way, all these things are kind of rhetorical because of what he's going to share here in a minute. If others share the right over you, don't we more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Now, he's saying here, what he's dealing with is when Paul was among them, he didn't even take pay. Even though he was working full-time among them as a gospel worker starting this church and helping them advance in, uh, in their knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, he did his own work for his own pay so that there would be no hindrance so that none of them could say, well, you just did this because you're getting paid for it. Isn't that interesting? That he would go to that extreme and not only for the sake of the gospel, but for the sake of this reconciliation that he's asking for. He can go to them with a really, really clear heart uh, because of some of this. So he, he's trying to avoid here any kind of a hindrance to the gospel. Now I want to ask myself occasionally here, what am I doing? What is going on in my life? Or what, am, what vibe am I giving off? What, what am I involved in? What conversation am I having? that might hinder reconciliation among someone else? That's a really hard question to ask sometimes. What is it about me that might be hindering the gospel or hindering reconciliation in the body of Christ? Okay, sometimes I don't like the answer to that question as I turn it in toward myself. What am I doing that's a hindrance? Okay, now, Paul's service, as we've talked about, is genuine. How does he show this? He shows this by endurance, being uh, kind of faithful in time of hardship. Now, I'm, I'm going to give you some references here or some things that he talks about that are difficulties that he's enduring, uh, beginning here in verse 4. All right? He's going to talk about uh, troubles of all kinds, hardships, experience, hardships, which for you and me would be um, uh, something like um, experiences of need and deprivation. He's going to say that I've gone through distresses, which are situations of great pressure. You ever felt kind of the heat is on, pressure's on? Well, that's what Paul's kind of dealing with here. Um, and he's going to talk about these things and say that just like Jesus, his example, our example, a true believer is willing to undergo such kind of hardships for the sake of restoring fellowships with other, fellowship with other people. A true follower of Jesus is willing to be inconvenienced, pressed, pressured, distressed, even troubled, if it will mean a reconciliation. 
Now, the question I've got to ask myself is, am I willing to be inconvenienced in that way? And again, sometimes I don't like the answer that comes back to me in that question. That's interesting. Uh, Paul has experienced several of these kind of hardships just before he wrote this letter. Um, so it's fresh on his mind. He's thinking about it. Just before he writes this letter, uh, look at, um, uh, go to 11. So go to the right. Verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. He's been in prison. He's been beaten. He's been in a shipwreck. Um, and he's writing all that saying, I, I, you know, I understand pressure. Um, uh, let's go to Acts 19. A lot of these things happen right before he's writing this letter back to the Corinthian church. I'm going to start in verse 23. Acts 19, 23. About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. That's what uh, often the uh, Christianity was called in those days. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see and hear that not only Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned people away, turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. What's the issue? Well, the, the people who make... Uh, these small g gods uh, for, for people to worship, uh, it's, it's cutting into their, their economy. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours would fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Now, look at verse, by the way, what happens here is a riot ensues. Paul caused a riot. Look at verse 32. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and the majority didn't know for what reason they had come together. Sound familiar? That's as much as I'll say about that. Okay? Now, the issue is, Paul says, I've even been the cause of the start of a riot. He had to slip away. He, he gets them kind of arguing with each other, and he kind of slips away. Um, uh, it's kind of interesting here. He's had it all, and he says, I, I, this kind of stuff I've experienced. In fact, I've just come through that. Now, he begins to talk about character traits that are needed in order to bring peace out of this kind of a background. Um, look at it. I'm going to read verse 6 to you again. In purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. Now, he begins here by talking about purity. That's talking about moral cleanliness, being wholly devoted to right living. He talks about understanding. Understanding in this sense is a comprehension of how God does things, comprehension of who God is and an understanding of, of, um, of how he does things, knowing him. Uh, through Jesus Christ. Patience, he says. The ability to remain calm and endure under pressure or suffering or hardship. And then he talks about kindness. 
which means being devoted to actions that benefit other people. Now, I begin to think about this, and it reminds me of Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23, that uh, uh, kind of articulates all those nine fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, gentleness, kindness, goodness, I've I've lost them, self-control. I've probably got seven out of nine. Uh, but he talks about all those, and it, it's obvious in 5, 22, and 23, and here, that all those things come from one source. They come from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And they're not going to come from any other place. Uh, do you read it here? In verse 6 and 7? It just seems so true to me. In the Holy Spirit. See that right in the middle of verse 6? So, uh, the idea is here, that these character traits, what the Bible's going to call the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work within me, can bring about the peace, the reconciliation that is necessary here in this, these scenarios. Now, I, just one little thought on verse 7 here, because he talks about we got righteousness on the right and righteousness on the left. One of the things I think you need to know, in, in, in case you ever find yourself... Uh, on, on the receiving end of some of this conflict is that the Lord has your left and your right. He's got both sides. And he's also got your back. As long as you're living in the type of character that verse 6 describes, you're going to recognize that the Lord is there with you. You know, for those of us who are parents or have uh, raised children or been around many of them, often we're called to interview, or intervene in disputes between kids and, and we'll hear their excuses back. You know, one child breaks another's toy and their answer is, it broke. It fell. Or the one my favorite is, I don't know. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? And, and probably the most frustrated you've ever been as a parent, if you're like me, is when your children are squabbling with each other, right? I think Paul feels this here. Uh, so, uh, isn't it interesting that uh, one child could push another child down and they skin their knees and she comes crying, and they ask the one who did it, what happened? She fell. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that even as adults, we try to excuse ourselves for our part in a disagreement or for a failure in relationship by pointing the finger somewhere else. The other person offended me. Well, I was having kind of a bad day and I said something I shouldn't have said. Her personality is just abrasive. Well, the circumstances kind of conspired against me. <laughs> and yet, I need to be sure if I want to be a reconciler that I can, um, can be clear and clean in this. Now, 
He's going to say that those who address reconciliation in their lives are going to experience extremes, many of them incredible extremes like he experienced. Look at verse 8. Glory and dishonor, evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers yet true, unknown yet well-known, dying yet behold we live as punished yet not put to death. Extremes here. Paradoxes of the life of faith. Yet the truth is in verse 9, the work of God cannot be stopped by any kind of a personal attack. So, why endure? I think verse 9 and 10 are telling this. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. I think, guys, that what Paul is trying to convey to them and to us is that I need to endure because I can observe the way Jesus endured and realize that joy was set before him as well. And you and I have a different kind of joy in our lives. I once heard a description of um, a commentary on the 23rd Psalm. Uh, by the time, when, when David is talking about being pressed, really, and he's talking about the goodness of God in, despite hardship, and he gets down to the part uh, where it's, you and I would kind of say he's wrapping up the prayer in the 23rd Psalm, and he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And this particular commentator called goodness and mercy two sheepdogs that followed David around. He had all this stuff going on, and yet here comes goodness and here comes mercy. I wonder who Shirley was. You know, but okay, never. Um, Shirley, goodness, no, I don't get the. It wasn't a third dog? No? Okay. The Lord follows the hardship in your life and mine with incredible joy. In fact, I would not. I think one of the things Paul is saying here is I wouldn't give up the hardships in my life in exchange for not receiving the joy that he gives me in, in context. How about you? Wouldn't you agree with me that some of the sweetest times in your life have been as a result of going through some particular time of hardship and seeing what follows? Here comes goodness. Here comes mercy. Wagging their tails right behind me. Isn't it true that he follows you? He follows the hardship in your life, the difficulty, even the conflicts in our lives with good things. Look at verse 10. One more time. Then we'll try to bring this kind of close. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. Those who serve the gospel have got to know that God's treasury is always at their disposal. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 6, where he will talk about you can't serve God and things. And then he follows that up a few verses later in verse 33 by saying that if we seek the Lord and his... Help me with it. Matthew six thirty-three. Thank you. Then all these things will be given to you as well. It's so true, isn't it? Now... Let's read just a little bit. I want us to jump ahead to chapter 7. Somebody read the first four verses of chapter 7. 
place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. He's going to end this part of this conversation with joy, with, with hope. Some very hopeful things. Now, uh, if we'd read the end of chapter 6, what we would have learned is that Paul is going to ask them to open their hearts. In fact, he's going to say, open your heart really wide. The idea here is that Christ's love makes the heart big enough to welcome anyone, even a former enemy. I want you to think about that for a moment. The love of Christ shed in your heart will, should make your heart big enough to welcome anyone into it, even someone with whom I've had a former conflict. And so, I want to deal with two principles here just real quickly in two minutes that are the why of how to, how to come to terms with that. You ready? How am I going to do this? Well, first, I've got to eliminate the selfish, hostile attitudes of my old life. I've got to realize that I've been called to a new life. 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? The old is gone, the new has come. I've been called to a new life. And so as I see old attitudes and old life patterns entering into my life, I've just got to ruthlessly get rid of those. And I've got to say to the Holy Spirit, I know this is not like you. Help me put it behind me. And so I might want to monitor occasionally what old attitudes I'm still hanging on to. Those that might be selfish or even hostile. Second, I want to replace those with devotion to God in some way. It's never enough to get rid of something if I don't replace it with something else. And so I'm going to say to, to the Holy Spirit, I want you to get rid of those old attitudes. And literally, as you read Galatians 5, it's going to say, and I want you to replace those with these good things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Lord, Fill me up with that so that I'm no longer filled with that other stuff. Now, here's what goes in your last blank. I don't think it's too simple to say. Some churches may be known for their fights. Okay. But I don't think it's too simple to say at all that the true message of the church is forgiveness. And you and I have to set the pace, model the way. We have to be as bold as Paul was at one point to say, follow me as I follow Christ, even in this sense of being forgiving people. What do you think? If I've been forgiven as much as I've been forgiven, Jesus is going to be pretty clear about this, as is Paul. If I've been forgiven that, then I can forgive you this. All right, chapters 8 and 9 next week, we'll talk about generosity as we close this out. Have a great week.